welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am Scott Parkin, your co-host, joining you from Berkeley, California. And as always, I am joined by uh, Bob Bazanko in Ohio. And I'm really looking forward to today's show. We are joined by an old friend who is also uh, an inspirational activist and, and teacher, professor, uh, Tao Ha. Tao is a Vietnamese refugee. Uh, we know her from our days in Houston. She earned her doctorate in sociology from UT Austin. Um, she's currently a professor at Maricosta College in Oceanside and has published a lot of stuff in academic journals and publications about race and gender and immigration and uh, Vietnamese experiences in the South, things that we'll talk about later. Most recently, Tao has kind of entered the, the film world. Uh, she was an advisor and associate producer of a documentary called Sea Drift, which is about a uh, true story of, uh, well, obviously it's a documentary, so <laughs> about uh, racial violence and Ku Klux Klan intimidation against Vietnamese uh, immigrants, fishermen, especially in a small Texas town not far from Houston. And her current project is working on Vietnamese American incarceration. She's very active in the community and in professional groups. She's uh, on the board of directors for Vietnamese American Arts and Letters Association, the Oceanside Promise, a collective impact organization which addresses the needs of youth, and on the advisory board of the Asian Culture and Media Alliance. And um, you're doing a lot of stuff, which I think everyone knew you would turn out that way when we knew you back in grad school. So it's really great to, to finally get to talk to you on air. So welcome. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for that intro. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for both of you for uh, having me here. I'm very excited and I greatly appreciate the time. Yeah. And, yeah, and just to kind of like get into it, um, you know, we're hoping to talk a little bit about current events and the, how the Vietnamese community has been responding. And so just to kind of start it off, like we've, we've you know, we've seen this uprising for the last couple of weeks um, around the murder of George Floyd, around police brutality and systemic racism. And, you know, there's, I, I've seen a, a couple of media articles about uh, Vietnamese uh, solidarity with uh, Black Lives Matter. And I'm just, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Uh, how has the Vietnamese community responded to this moment uh, where people are taking action? Like, like kind of more action than we've seen in probably our lifetimes. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm part of that uh, movement in terms of really wanting the Vietnamese community to uh, visibly, explicitly show our support. And it comes along with, the, the, the fact that everyone else is showing their support. So why wouldn't we? Um, and part of the, the Asian American movement is to also identify ourselves in our specific communities uh, because we each have histories and experiences that are different and some that are similar, but um, to stand up and say, you know, Viet and Black solidarity is a way of expressing the unique place that we as Vietnamese Americans have in terms of showing our support um, for the Black community, but also against the uh, systemic problems of 
police brutality, of uh, the, the state of uh, violence um, uh, within law enforcement, um, structural uh, systems that support, you know, um, very uh, iron-fisted capitalist protections. And so we, you know, the, the activists and the academics, uh, we're, 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 we were ready <laughs> for that. And, and then we, we saw a younger generation move with us, um, uh, uh, students that, and, and, and the adults, young adults who had taken ethnic studies courses, who had taken Vietnamese studies courses, who had gone and taken liberal arts courses and, and uh, recognizing um, that they were seeing what they had read about now take place in person. And so that um, helped kind of like that, that collective movement to happen. And I say that, and at the same time, there's a lot of heartbreak in our community because there's so much anti-Blackness as well in the community. Um, and there are several reasons for that. Um, one of them that's most visible now is uh, the, uh, the uh, issues of um, nail salons, um, Vietnamese nail salons and the anti-Blackness and the racism and discrimination that kind of happens in that space. I was just thinking about this as I was talking to folk, folks yesterday about um, it, you know, the, the Vietnamese nail salon workers and black community members, their customers. So their interactions are all transactional in a business space. There's no um, outside dynamic uh, besides this capitalist structure that they, they, they find themselves. And so then it becomes like a consumer, buyer, seller, rigid, uh, do you tip, do you not tip, you know, are you a good customer, bad customer, are you bad service, good service, and that's very limiting of, of who people are, and so that kind of compounds um, the, the resentment of, of, of um, racial, you know, conflict, and then, you know, <laughs> the sad part, and, and very understandable, though, of, of how Vietnamese um, in those generations are conservative, are Republican, are anti-communists, are Republicans. And, and so uh, there's a, a, a layer of discriminatory white supremacy, uh, white idealism um, that, that comes within that package as well. So we're seeing a lot of, of, of black hate. Um, and there was a, a nail salon in Carson, California, Tips and Toes, I think was the name. And the owner, um, Vietnamese woman, went on her Facebook and put a very anti-Black message, uh, you know, compared George Floyd to COVID, which I was like, okay, <laughs> and evolved COVID. And then um, went up so far as to post, to print her message and post it on a sheet of paper on the window of her salon. While at the same time, her customers are predominantly Black. So, you know, there's just, we, so those of us who are in Black Sedet Solidarity are, are trying to figure out what to do about this, not just this incident, but the overall, um, you know, um, anti-Black sentiment of our own community. Yeah. You know, you said, you know, you were ready when this started, but even before this, I mean, we're in various systemic crises right now, but I think was also an issue too, because with Trump consistently saying this is China's vi the Chinese virus, the Wuhan virus, 
And I think it all Asian Americans, I would, you know, the media played it up. I don't know how often this happened, but you would often see people haranguing Asians. It, Americans don't really make distinctions. It's, you know, between different, different Asian countries. Uh, and several of these were actually African Americans. And so there was already this kind of sense of, of uh, danger, I guess, in the, in mm-hmm. the community. And mm-hmm. did, did you kind of, was that kind of something being talked about among people in, in the Vietnamese community as well? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, crime and the way that our, our, our media, our justice system perpetuates the, the imagery of the black criminal, uh, the black uh, violent person, um, that's that's very, you know, Vietnamese Americans are not uh, immune to that. And so they have absorbed that kind of socialization of, 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 of um, you know, the black community and black individuals. So then when they see it, you know, it just reifies, it reaffirms uh, that their, their thinking, it um, provides further evidence. And, um, you know, they're not, um, they have not had the opportunity to take the, you know, class in college or in high school to kind of be exposed to this idea of, of, um, you know, the intersection of race and class and the urban poor and poverty and hundreds of years of oppression um, of the black community. Uh, slavery is over is kind of like the simplistic way that they think about this, of race relations. So they're not privy to making the connection that, you know, black crime is a product of, of, of a structural thing. Right. It's a it's a, an infusion and, in, in, you know, black gangs and black, you know, um, drug crimes. Those are all um, institutional uh, violence against the community that that that's not being talked about or has never been kind of shared. I wish I could share it. I have I, I, what I've been doing in the last few months is I need to up my Vietnamese vocabulary game. How do I, let's see how I'm going to describe structural oppression, right? Yeah. And institutional violence. Like, that's what I need to do uh, in the next state phase. Um, so back to the question is that they, there's, they're the imageries and they all get reconfirmed. They, 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 they give confirmation bias and they um, solidify the, the racism even more. Um, I remember in 1992 when the LA riots happened and the Korean American community, you know, suffered business losses and the looting. And so now I see the same images of Vietnamese shops posting on their social media, look at my shop. And there's a lot of sympathy for mm-hmm. the refugee, the immigrant who came here with nothing, built everything up from the uh, ground and then to have it all destroyed by um, quote, quote, black looters. And so, yeah. You know, that hostility just has been um, uh, reaffirmed over and over again. Yeah, because one of the one of the triggers around the L.A. riots, I mean, we all know about Rodney King, but there were a couple mm-hmm. of like kind of trigger events that led up to it, one of which was like a um, young black woman had been killed by a Korean shop owner, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. also a trigger owner. And then I'd also read kind of prepping for the interviews, like half the damage done during the L.A. riots was to Asian owned businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, a piece of the, the history that I came across, and the, the reason I remember this um, is because I was yeah, at the University of Houston at the time, Bob, in 99, 97. So I was always aware of, <laughs> or at least I was told, don't go to that neighborhood right outside that big parking lot. Remember the parking lot over by the stadium? And then sure. on the other sure. side was a, 
Third uh, Ward, where George yeah, Floyd Third came from. That's where George yeah, Floyd came from. Yeah. Oh, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so that that area, um, there were a lot of Vietnamese shop owners, mm-hmm. and so when I reinvented my life and went and started studying sociology as part of one of my projects, I went to that community and started interviewing the shop owners and mm-hmm. the black patrons. I remember that, and it yeah. was very similar in terms of the the stereotypes, the interactions, the dynamics um, that we were hearing in, you know, the, by the shop owners in um, Koreatown, or excuse me, in the Korean owned businesses in black communities in LA. But the thing to remember, and, and I think this gets lost in um, the conversation about the 92 riots, is when Korean Americans had gathered and um, marched uh, uh, themselves, they did remind their community that, you know, th- what happened was a product of Korean Americans themselves having shops that were situated within areas of inequality and poverty and, and, and such. And part of that is because they were rejected from mainstream opportunities. Um, they were rejected or did not have the capital to, to be in other places. So, you know, how, how do we explain that to Vietnamese Americans and having that understanding that, that I think that's necessary to undo and unravel um, this anti-Black sentiment in our community. And so what sort of organizing efforts are going on that like is, is challenging those those cultural institutions or that cultural consciousness within the Vietnamese, especially it sounds like in a maybe potentially like an older generation? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, th- that's a great question. We are we are having conversations among ourselves or the, the what I would call the activists, Vietnamese Americans and Asian Americans, is that we, you know, what the George Floyd protests have done for us as well is really shock our system. Not, not, we're not shocked that all of that's happening, right? But we're being shocked into a system because now we have to be, conf- we are confronted with our elders and with our own community of the explicit ways that they contribute to the problem. And, um, you know, we kind of, <laughs> kind of like, oh, we always knew our racist auntie that owned the nail shop was like that. But now it's like, oh, she put it on social media. <laughs> I guess it's all out there now, right? Oh, uh, the, the, there was a protest on Monday. So a few days ago, earlier this week, by a um, Vietnamese business leader. He owns a nail salon supply shop and kind of a conglomerate of manicure businesses that sell to nail salons. And California had not opened up nail uh, salons businesses, but hair salons had been open. And then Governor Newsom a few weeks back said that um, uh, COVID had a trace to a nail salon and and then it was never confirmed. So the nail salon folks are now really pissed. (laughs) They're angry that, oh, thanks for associating nail salons with COVID. Thanks for not opening up our business. Why do hair salons get to open? So they rallied and created a protest in front of the Little Saigon Mall in Westminster, California. And is that, is that Orange County? Yeah, it was in Orange County. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah the large uh, community there. And I mean, <laughs> you know, our, our group, we're, we're out at the Floyd protests and the, the, the anti-police you know, 
uh, protests and and they're like oh you know you're a communist and you know why would you support black criminals that's what they are telling us and then they go and they go you know protest um uh we want to open up businesses again uh, this is our livelihood and i felt torn because i do know that many of these families are struggling with their the financial setback there have been some resources to assist them with the stimulus check and unemployment and how to understand, you know, business, the business package and things like that, but they were still left out. So it's this careful kind of treading of like, we want to recognize the larger issues with, you know, without like trampling on these people's um, lives as well, because it's hard for all of us, right? We're, we're, and if we don't have some kind of collective movement, then you know, that's the question I'm struggling with myself right now. Do I just go, you know, yeah, you're, you're a lost cause. The train's left and I'm moving on without you. Or do I spend energy and, you know, really try to convince some of these people? And, and, and I think that depends on where they're at. Are they on the fence? Are they somewhat malleable or are they just hardline? And, and so I'm done with that. I think you see that in a lot of immigrant groups. I know, um, you know, a lot of old Italians are, you know, uh, kind of like a Sal and do the right thing. Um, you know, I think, you know, cause often immigrant groups interact as, as part of a commodity or service exchange, like you pointed yeah. out and they don't really get to know each other. Um, obviously COVID, even before these, these rebellions took place, COVID was kind of exposing really laid bare the, the you know, failures, the, the other failures of so many aspects of American society. Um, is there any sense in, in the communities in which you operate, that people are now seeing that, you know, the problem isn't each other, you know, like Vietnamese and Blacks aren't a problem for each other. The problem is Wall Street and corporations, or is there any kind of, because I think in those rebellions in the last two weeks, I was like, the most heartening thing was I think people understood that, that this is way bigger than bad cops or, you know, a, a, an individual being murdered. It was this massive systemic crisis. And I just wondered if um, those discussions are taking place in the communities that you know of. Yeah, you know, um, that's, a, um, that's a place that some of the, the folks that I work with are getting, they're getting there. They're, they're now opening their eyes and go, okay, this is way bigger. And, and just as you had described, Bob, and I share, you know, resources that kind of like speak to or point out like structural systemic things and, and the notion of, you know, broken systems. So that, that's a portion. There's another portion of the folks that I, I work with that um, they kind of always felt, and, and, and I'm referring to a lot of uh, white people, they always kind of felt the sympathy, the wrongness, you know, racism is wrong, but they are now recognizing um, that silence is, is, is part of the problem, that being nice about things is not going to work, um, that uh, there's a difference uh, between, uh, you know, silence and being an anti-racist. So at the college, we do a lot of professional development and professional learning, and a lot of it is around equity and, and racial justice for our students. And we have been sharing these resources of, of books and readings. And, and, you know, a lot of our white colleagues, I love them to death. They're, 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 they're not harmful, but, you know, they're not, they were not in, in, interested in a book like Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist or Robin D'Angelo's um, White Fragility. And now I'm seeing these folks want, ordering these books, 
ready to read them, you know, ready to get to that, to make that take that next stage, um, get to get to the next stage. And so I see a lot of hope there. Um, I see a lot of change and collective action in the young community. The only problem is we have, you know, like you said, COVID has shed light on a lot of these systemic things. Well, in the opposite direction, um, the Vietnamese who were already Trump supporters are now digging in their heels. Um, you know, they have bought into the narrative of the Chinese virus. Uh, and, and this is rooted to, you know, this is rooted yeah. in Vietnam, Vietnam and China, and sure, China sure. you know. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, they, they're like, Trump is taking care of China. You know, he, I'm glad he banned travel from China. He's doing all the right things to protect us. And, you know, so there, there's, there's um, more support. There's hardened support for, uh, in that way. And, and um, you know, just some of the historical trauma rhetoric of, you don't know, and this is a, the older generation or another group, you know, and it's younger people who have bought it too. And they'll, they'll argue with us like, oh, you don't know what the communists did to our people. You know, Ho Chi Minh is a murderer. He's the Hitler of, of Vietnam. And, you know, you'll never get it because you were too little. And, you know, and so if you understood, then you would know why we feel the way that we do. Um, and, and I think part of that is, never being able to reconcile their trauma to a place of healing. And so they are perpetuating their pain. Um, and that is what drives fear. That is what drives hate, anger. Um, because you have to get to a place of, I believe, peace before you can fight, right? If you are at a place where you're in peace with yourself, then you're willing to say the uncomfortable things. You're willing to go to battle. <laughs> you know, you're willing to put yourself out there and I don't think these folks have gotten there. They're they are stuck in 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 that hurt and that and um, those uh, those years where you know the community struggled so much as PGs. So, how much of that trauma do you think is passed down to the next generation or the generation after that? Like, how many like you know, Orange the Vietnamese community in Orange County has a, a reputation of being conservative. Like, how 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 much how 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 much is the, what is the Trump support like there in that community? Yeah, that's a great I mean, question, Scott. Yeah, I mean, I also, you know, we've seen a lot of like, a lot of the demonstrations around reopening the economy, like, you know, before the rebellion started, we're in Orange County, they're at like mm -hmm. um, Huntington Beach and places like that. I most, everyone I saw in the video looked like white, white men with mm -hmm. guns, but like <laughs> how much, how much did the Vietnamese community participate in that, of the conservative, of the conservative of element, conservative element? Yeah, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't get a sense that uh, Vietnamese Americans in Orange County were part of any of that. Um, uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I've read people say, well, those um, protesters, those Huntington Beach protesters were part of a, you know, Trump rally funded something, something. And okay, whether or not they were or whether or not they weren't, um, the the demonstration that they held kind of helps us to think that you know there's a portion of our society that will always um, prefer profits over people. We are a transactional society that thinks about the monetary impact of our lives over you know the well-being of our neighbors. Um, and 
so the Vietnamese community is, um, you know, we're embedded, the early generations are embedded in a, a kind of a, um, an assimilation model of, of whiteness and mainstream identity and dominant, you know, identity. Everybody wanted to be successful, right? Right. And, and so you assimilate. And so if we are being real here, you know, America is, is a racist society. <laughs> you know, it's, we've got racist systems. Its history has, has been oppressive. Its history has been um, uh, imperialistic, you know, Genocid genocidal. genocidal, full of war, full of, you know, corruption. Um, and, and so that's what we assimilated to. <laughs> <laughs> right. right and 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 we but we mask it in like here is your here are the little scraps that you know the elite are going to give us so that we can think that like you know we made it in america and and one or you know a handful of us will become millionaires or whatnot and so i want to bring that into the that model minority thing idea that that um we assimilated to as well and i remember being young and thinking oh gosh I hated being compared to to these other Asian kids, you know. <laughs> like, right. Look at so and so's kids, and I'm like, oh. Um, but it hit. It, it would make me, you know, this transfer of of, of trauma. You ask about Scott, then it would make me try to rise and go. Okay, I need to be just as good. I need to be good at math. I need to be, you know, good in school, and you know, strive to be this and that. And um, so those those. Um, aspirations and expectations that come with that trauma uh, do transfer to us. Now, some of us in my generation now, my, folks my age that are Vietnamese, you know, you 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 get a, a mix, and I guess it's regional because my the friends my age who are in California, <laughs> you know, we're we're the left leaning folks. But my friends that are in Texas, oh man, you know, they're they're. They're red capitalists, you know? right. so um, <clears throat> there's a regional difference, a, a, a generational difference. And so, it, you know, we're not monolithic. You can carve us out into these categories. And I think that's what makes it really, really hard to mobilize as a really full community. So we just have to do it in the capacity that we can within our own um, support groups. And, and again, so back to the original, original question of what is the, what are we trying to do? You know, we're the, um, the support group that I belong to. We're just starting to, to kind of like say, well, what, what can we do now? Because we're being confronted uh, and we have to say something. We can't be quiet anymore about our, our racist auntie. Um, this is the Green and Red podcast. Uh, see, I, I remember today. Uh, <laughs> And we uh, really appreciate all the support we've gotten. Uh, we're talking to Taha about uh, lots of things, immigration in America and various issues, but especially Vietnamese black relationships right now <clears throat> during the rebellion. Um, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Scott, you're the, you're the go-to guy on Patreon information. What is that? Right, uh, so Patreon, you can become a recurring donor. Uh, if you go to patreon.com backslash green red podcast, uh, we have a small but mighty group of recurring donors and we're looking for more. And then we also have now launched, uh, if you don't want to become a recurring donor, you can also go to our website, greenredpodcast.org, and we have a donate page there if you want to make a one-time donor donation. And we actually had our first one-time donation this week. So thanks to that very special donor out there. Yeah, um, we, uh... They know who they are. Um, 
We call our donor group the uh, M19 Brigade, and this is particularly appropriate right now because we did a show on May 19th, which is the shared birthday of Malcolm X and Ho Chi Minh. So there is this kind of uh, synchronicity between uh, Vietnamese and, and African-American revolutionaries. Um, I've noticed that there's, you know, uh, when I started teaching at the University of Houston, and I was telling you this before, the students tended to be very conservative and, and they were very respectful, but they would kind of have issues with some of the things I said about No Din Ziem or Ho Chi Minh. And I'm seeing a massive change in that. And, and I've noticed, especially among people like you and, and our shared friend, our dear friend, Roy Vu, um, younger Vietnamese are starting to kind of have these, you know, really diverse ideas. And uh, uh, the other day, uh, uh, um, Viet Tan Nguyen, who's a, a very famous scholar, mm -hmm. eyes, mm -hmm. did a long public post. And uh, he said, um, he was talking about younger generations. So the younger generation of Vietnamese, unlike the older one, leans toward independent democratic positions. They're more aware of what they owe to black struggle, the civil rights movement, the Asian American movement. These struggles have redefined the public space and public thinking and the public space is where we can and must fight. Now, that would have been kind of unthinkable 15 years ago. I mean, he would have been in big trouble, but I, I get the sense that that's kind of becoming a, a far more common view among that generation, is, which is encouraging, right? Absolutely. And it's not just Vietnamese Americans, and, and but Vietnamese American young generations are unique because we have this backdrop. They have a backdrop. I keep saying we. <laughs> they, the young generation, have a backdrop of of, of grandparents and parents yeah. who are, um, you know, uh, the far far opposite of where they're at. But just young generations, the young generation overall. I, um, you know, locally. I think every day in uh, North County, San Diego, there was a protest somewhere, um, Oceanside, Carlsbad, and every one of them I went to were either organized or led by young people. Um, the, 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 the crowd was majority young people, and so I have a lot of hope for them, and, and Viet Thanh Nguyen was correct in that we have to now have these conversations in a public space. And um, not just conversations, but, mo you know, mobilization, activation, you know, do things. What are the actions that we'll take? Are the actions um, going to be um, grassroots? Are they going to be, you know, something larger? But that's a conversation we have to have. And there's, I think there's space for everybody. I really appreciate that you share that within your class, because I think for myself as a Vietnamese American, I, in the past, in the past, I would kind of hold my thought I would you know I would debate with myself like what am I gonna say about Ho Chi Minh because yeah. I have these thoughts but you know I don't want to get beat up um not, not necessarily you know figuratively yeah figuratively right yeah. oh I don't know maybe maybe um uh, uh literally you know because Little Saigon was also the site of um the the video store guy getting yeah. beat up Yep. Uh, when he had the picture of, of Ho Chi Minh. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, but but really it was, well, I shame my parents, you know, what would, my, would this make my parents look bad? And um, I think we, as this young generation, we have to kind of reconcile that with ourselves. It's that uh, we'll probably piss off our parents anyway, yeah. <laughs> no matter what we do. I've, you know, we've been, I've been, you know, rebelling for many other things. So, um you know, I think the young generation kind of gets that past that they, they it's been far removed enough um, that they might not feel that same kind of like holding back. Uh, but also, you know, they, and, and this might be in, 
um, a product of like the push for ethnic studies, the push for um, these histories uh, that now shed light on the, the relationship between all of these movements um, that are a shared uh, goal, which is solidarity among the working class. You know, how do we rise uh, against the, the neoliberal um, model of like making us think that, that uh, productivity and, you know, wealth are, are, are a positive thing. And um, that's another, like, that's another conversation, right? Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm glad that you're seeing that. I, I see that too. And especially among Vietnamese Americans, there's a young generation that also wants to know how they can talk to their parents. So one of the um, actions that I've seen is um, we post things on social media and there's a group now that is translating that into Vietnamese. Yeah. And then how do we share that with our elders? Yeah. Right. How can we still re be respectful of our elders? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really cool. I saw several people post that. You have phrases and they'd be translated so you could talk to your parents or grandparents or, or mm -hmm. what. Um, Scott, I'm sorry. I'm just going to change subject a little bit if you want to ask a follow-up question. No, that's okay. okay. I was going to change subjects too. So, <laughs> the, uh, one, one thing I'm kind of curious about is like, you know, the one thing that we've seen in the news that's literally happened in the Vietnamese communities, the Trump administration has been targeting uh, Vietnamese and other Southeast Asian immigrants around immigration. Um, you know, there was a number of like news stories about them going after like criminal immigrants and deporting mm -hmm. them. And I'm wondering if has this kind of shifted any thinking within the Vietnamese community, the, the sort of Trump administration, federal immigration yeah. policy. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you. That's a great question. Um, again, it still falls along the lines of those of us who are um, more progressive and mm -hmm. it has not changed. It really hasn't changed the mindset of those who are already Trump supporters. In fact, they Unfortunately, they actually appreciate it and they will, they will, you know, voice um, ideas like, well, they shouldn't have committed crimes. You know, well, I'm, you know, we were, we did the right thing. Why did they not do the right thing? Um, oh, it's not so bad to be back in Vietnam. You know, <laughs> like, they rationalize away the, the issue um, of, of justice, of social justice and not understanding that why did some of these folks commit crimes in the first place? You know, it comes back to an understanding of the Black experience. When you're a refugee and you're thrown into, um, in, you know, a circumstance that, that our community did, yeah, some folks are going to rise and some <laughs> folks are going to struggle. And in those struggles when, that comes with poverty, that comes with inequality, that comes with racism, that comes with marginalization and and exclusion from uh, the mainstream and all of those things, right? Um, some people are gonna rise and some people are gonna fall, um, but those are, you know, mistakes that are made. And, and that's another thing that's a problem with our justice system is we're punitive. There's no room for restorative justice. There's no room for understanding the circumstances and how to resolve some of these uh, you know, mistakes that people make, these, uh, these errors. And, and so you, you make a mistake and you're done. I mean, it's, it's so painful to see that, you know, uh, the justice system will lock you up, you can do your time, 
and then you're released. Now you've paid for your crimes, right? <laughs> but we'll, but now we're yeah theoretically. But now we're you're, you're you've done with parole. You've moved on with your life. You've got a family now. You're working. You're productive. You're paying taxes. You haven't committed anything else. You are probably one of the most you know straight edge person because you don't want to violate anything <laughs> ever again. And now they're being targeted for deportation. How is that right? Um, you know, and Southeast Asians as a collective identity, you know, in the Vietnamese community, there's a sliver of hope. Um, you know, uh, uh, Bush, the second Bush had recognized, you know, they, there was a push by the American government to deport um, Vietnamese who had committed crimes early on. And this was part of the bigger, um, uh, immigration reform and deporting criminals and things like that that came out in the 90s. <clears throat> and, um, and Vietnam was like, nope, we, we're, we're not going to take them. So in the, the law, you can't deport people when the country won't take them. So then there was, you know, these talks of like uh, trade deals and, you know, again, economic leveraging and, and, and bullying and stuff like that. And so they actually came to an agreement that um, it was a memo that protected Vietnamese who came before 1995. And because that was the year that, you know, normalization of, of whatever relations, you want to call it, right? Relations. <laughs> yes, really economic ones. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, investments, right? Um, uh, would, would, would open up in 95. And so if you came before 95, you're a refugee. And if you came after 95, you're no longer a refugee. And so you aren't going to be protected by, um, Know, this memo and uh but but i mean laotians Hmong, cambodians they they were, were expelled and 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 came as part of that refugee crisis they didn't get this protection and so those communities are really being hard hit by trump's um uh you know and harsh enforcement of of uh, deportation of southeast asians um and so again it's pushed um, the activist groups of us and the, the progressive folks of us to um, really try to make change. Uh, I see a lot of activity in an organization called Asians um, Advancing Justice. So they do like pro bono legal um, work for, for the community and they've really picked up, um, they were the ones responsible for um, a lawsuit when ICE was kind of like, um, arresting and, and deporting um, folks who were protected by the memo. And so they were able to halt that. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we have mobilization in those areas. There's, there are filmmakers now that are shining light on the issue. Mm -hmm. um, but the other side is now like, yeah, good. You know, we don't want criminals in our community, even if they're our own people. Right? You know, in, in Houston, which is that the second biggest Vietnamese population, Houston after Orange County, I think Houston, New Orleans. Or uh, he, uh, Orange County and San Jose. Uh, so those uh, two communities are, are top two. And yeah. then um, Houston would be the third. And okay. this is outside, you know, of Vietnam. It's the, right. uh, the Vietnamese diaspora, right? So the two communities in Orange County and then Houston being the third. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in Houston, I mean, there are Vietnamese and Chinese gangs. So does the community just like pretend they don't exist or they're bad apples or 
Oh, absolutely. I've talked to like Roy and you both about that kind of model minority idea, but yeah. the reality is not everybody who came over, you know, that first wave tended to be government officials and people who, you know, but after that you had, you know, poor people coming over, people who had been in refugee camps. And something I think is worth talking about, when Vietnamese arrived in the United States, they weren't terribly welcomed. I, uh, the other day you posted mm -hmm. a, a series of articles like headlines from the New York Times mm -hmm. and media which talked about this kind of almost hysteria in some places about these Vietnamese who were coming in, you know, and they were going to destroy our communities. And so, um, I mean, is that remembered? Do, do people remember how they were met when they came to the U.S.? Or, um, You know, the refugee, folks like my parents, they will, they, they would, they didn't even know. Right? They're not reading the New York Times. Yeah, they yeah, weren't yeah, reading yeah. the paper. Right? All they knew was, oh my gosh, um, the U.S. is taking us or Australia or France or whatever country that was receiving um, refugees. Uh, then they will remember the sponsors, the kind, generous sponsors who would take us in and let us live in their homes. They will remember the Catholic charities that donated yeah. food and clothing and items. They'll remember the uh, refugee organizations that... Um, you know, would process paperwork and, and things like that. So th those are those are the memories and the experiences of that generation. Um, only I only discovered later on as an adult and a, a college student, a graduate student, that there was um, resistance to 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 our um, uh, uh, you know arrival, and um, so the 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 memory of um, our arrival from our community is often a very nostalgic, warm, wow, that was really terrible and look where we're at now. Uh, mm -hmm. It is not one of, um, actually there were problems, people didn't want us, actually they put us, you know, they would, we would live in the poorest neighborhoods and you know, uh, in proximity to crime and, and, and poverty and, and inequality and oppression and all of that and policing and, and over-policing in those communities. Um, so back to your question of like, do we just like don't recognize um, the, uh, uh, the ugly underbelly parts of our, our community? Yeah, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about alcoholism. We actually, probably glorify it, right? <laughs> um, we don't talk about domestic violence. I, I remember growing up and hearing over and over how many men, Vietnamese men had shot and killed their wives, right? And nobody was talking about, let's deal with domestic violence. They just took it as a, a fact of, of life. Um, nobody was talking about people going to prison um, and being incarcerated for these crimes. In fact, they were glad that they were being incarcerated because you know, they're bad kids, bad apples, whatever you want to call it, making a bad name for us, right? Um, we want to we wanna keep up our reputation as the good refugee, the good immigrant. Um, a very good friend of mine, you know, has been incarcerated for now 23 years, and his family or his parents, um, you know, tell people that he's in the military and that he's been gone this whole time. I have another friend who was in a federal prison um, 17 years, and he, his brothers said that he was um, in Hawaii and gone to medical school and was a successful doctor there. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, not a cowboy I, in Montana like uh, no. Tony's father. <laughs> Gotta be a successful doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so we hide that, you know, we, we, yeah. we don't want to talk about um, 
those those things that would make our community look bad. I remember when I was doing research for my uh, thesis on, on nail salons, and, you know, I saw a lot of under the table cash deals. And, you know, these women were very forthright with me and these men who were the husbands or the, the you know, brothers and often the shop managers were, you know, counting certain transactions and not and whatnot, right? And so I, you know, I was kind of telling, like talking to my parents about that. And they're like, you're not gonna write that, are you? <laughs> you know, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna tell on our people, are you? <laughs> I said, well, if they say that they don't want me to, then I, then I, I have to re- yeah. retract that. But if, if I had them sign a paper, they said every, anything yeah. they tell me I could use. Yeah. And they're like, you still shouldn't. <laughs> oh, make our people look bad, right? So there's a lot of that going on in our community. So um, just to segue a little bit, you know, kind of talking about this, this memory of like the, you know, Catholic charities being welcomed into the U.S. after leaving like refugee camps. The, the film that you're an advisor and associate producer on, Sea Drift, you know, talks about a, a, a racial incident where the Klan in the mid-70s basically like acted out against like Vietnamese Fisher community. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about a little, a bit, a little bit about that and if, if incidents like that also, um, how that plays on the collective memory in the community. It's mm, a great question. Thank you. Thank you for plugging the documentary. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're going to do that. Yeah. That was a priority. Um, yeah, thank you. We wanted to build up to it. Yeah. Okay, we're getting there. We're getting there. You know, um, Sea Drift is the name of a town in Texas. It's a coastal town on... Um, you know, along the Gulf of Mexico. And, um, you know, a large number of Vietnamese refugees were fishermen in Vietnam. They were in areas like Vung Tau and Phuc Tinh. And, and so when they came to the U.S., that was kind of a natural fit for them as jobs. In Sea Drift, it was unique because the workers were recruited by um, a guy who owned a, a blue crab processing plant in Maryland. So Blue Crab is big in Maryland, but it's also big in Texas. And so he opened up a processing plant in Seadrift, and he um, himself, Leon Ruthenberg, and this is in the, the film, um, you know, brought these workers down. And so most of them were women who were recruited to work in the plant to like, you know, deshell them and take the meat out. And um, uh, and so then they would bring their their family members and say, oh, he's hiring and there's a need. And, you know, the gender dynamics was interesting because the men who were recruited to work in the, the crab plants were like, this is a feminine job. I need to be out on the water, right? So then they became the crabbers and the shrimpers. But many of them also came as a result along all the coastal towns where there were fishery work, um, to do fishery work. And, and so that influx really disrupted uh, the normalcy and the way of life of the local native community um and there was not you know when you're when there's an is a small town there's not an organized systemic way of real quick native being like white shrimpers uh, and white yeah. fishermen yeah, okay well white but also there were a lot of um uh, mexican uh, uh, americans okay. that had worked in, in in those areas um palacios is a town one of those small towns and they had a predominantly mexican-american um community of fishery workers there um, so I, I, you know, the film focuses on sea drift, which is predominantly white. But when we're talking about the larger context of fishery workers, there were a lot of 
uh, Latino Latinx workers as well. Um, uh, so I've moved away from like white fishermen <laughs> in the bigger context to the native local folks, right? Um, and, and again, that might be problematic because Mexican Americans aren't native there either. <laughs> so now I gotta come up with a new term. Um, so thanks for pointing that out, Scott. And, and, and so the tensions of, um, you know, it, a lot of it gets rooted in this notion of race and hostility and, and, and you know, not liking the Vietnamese. And, and there were elements of that. There were elements of language barrier, cultural differences, misunderstandings of um, the norms of, of, you know, unspoken norms of territory and who's part of the ocean is this part and <clears throat> longstanding, you know, courtesies. And so that is wrapped up in there. But, um, you know, what I think Sea Drift tries to do is also to show the complexity of the experience and who was going through what. And, um, you know, it's not in the film, but in, in, in the way that I think about it is uh, it, it's part of the larger post-Vietnam angst of the country, mm -hmm. um, the trauma of our soldiers um, that came back and, and kind of like received a, the blow of, of anti-war um, sentiment, um, which is part of the reason why the KKK came, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, but also Texas being in an economic downturn at the time. Um, the oil crisis, the energy crisis, all of that was hurting folks. And at the same time, an increase in imports. So you have so many variables that are hurting the local fishermen. And so the easiest blame is these newcomers who are, are now, you know, competing with us and making it harder for us to make a living. Ironically, also, Sea Drift has been in the news recently because the petrochemical industry just dumps plastic tons of plastic uh into the into the ocean there and like when I, when you're talking about shrimping and crabbing there that's what i was thinking of yes um, yes um diane wilson she's a subject in the film she's like a multiple, we, we have like, a, an interview coming up where she's oh, prominent in, in the, yeah. the discussions not with her but she's very prominent in it oh yeah. you want to talk to her also uh, later, around like, that time talk I... to you <laughs> Yeah, she uh, won that lawsuit. She and her, yes, her yeah, group right. won that lawsuit against yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Formosa Plastics. Yep. Yes. And, and yeah. Diane was a, you know, a shrimper and probably mm -hmm. multiple generations back. Mm -hmm. That's that's why you have to listen to Green and Red Podcast for all your radical news, right? That's yeah. right. <laughs> all, the, all the best people on. Um, well, at the same time, there was also an incident in Kima, which became the subject of a, of a Hollywood movie uh, with the Klan and Vietnamese shrimpers. And um, I think I don't know if it was you or Viet Thanh uh, Nguyen who pointed out that the black community actually was pretty um, accommodating to Vietnamese when they came over. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I guess that's kind of not part of the narrative anymore either. Or you know, it's it's it that that's a, a great point. You know, tying the issue of the KKK, but to the bigger story of you know, we, when we go back to those uh, points you made about um, articles showing, you know, resistance to refugees coming, Vietnamese refugees coming to America, um, Black community leaders came together and made a statement that um, America should bring uh, these refugees. And yes, while we're in an economic, you know, hardship as a nation, that should not override the humanitarian thing to do. 
So it was a, choo a choosing of people over profits, a choosing of humanity over economics that the Black community made. And that was never a part of my history of yeah. learning. Um, and it wasn't until recent years that, you know, people are digging around and it's Vietnamese people, right? Digging around in our history, like, hey, what happened? You know, what was going on? And we're historians and we're sociologists and political scientists. And so uh, we dig into the archives and we see these things and, and now we're bringing them to light. So, um, you know, the black community did show us that support. And um, that's another thing that we were trying to translate for our elders because yeah. we don't know if they know that at all. Um, but at the same time, you know, someone pointed out that we don't want to fall into the trap of transactional justice. Like, oh, well, they helped us. So we're, we're going to help them. Oh, they didn't help us. So then we're not going to help them, um, which is kind of the narrative of the COVID crisis, right? Black right. Americans saying, well, look how Asians treated us. They've never stood up for us in, in the past. So why should we stand for? So if this transactional um, uh, solidarity is, is something that, you know, we should stay away from and we should do the right thing because it's the right thing to do because we see ourselves as a collective, right? I, um, yeah. Well, no, I, I think that's common with immigrant groups. I mean, my particular family story takes place way before yours, you know, Italian Americans. But, um, you know, uh, in the 1920s, it's a legend around here that uh, a bunch of Italian Catholics met the KKK at the borders, mm. kicked their ass. And yet, <laughs> hey, you know, um, well, what struck me is you have people, you know, and, and, you know, my people and your people are supporting the people who the KKK like, right? They're on the same yeah. side of the KKK yeah. now. And it's maddening. I, I always tell people, like, you don't know the history of your own people. What happened, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, in New Orleans, 13 Sicilians were hanged, you know, lynched. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. this, uh, an Olympics of oppression where I'm going to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a. Else's. But it's, yeah. it's this, this total loss of memory, this, this willful loss of memory. And so you end up being on the same side as the people who really oppressed your, your grandparents, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, so I think what you're doing is, is like critically important and, and these new progressive Vietnamese groups that you talked about are, are you know, really vital. Uh, and younger people, I think, get it way better than, than the older folks do. You see, you've seen that in the last few weeks. You know, they're mm -hmm. there and they, they get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of curious, like with, with the film or in other work you've done, um, how does, how does, well, you know, talking about the film, how does the, how does the story of what happened at Sea Drift like kind of like center and strengthen the history of like Asian Americans in the South or in the U.S. Like it seems like that's a that's a kind of common theme in the work that you've done. Oh, thank you, thank you for that question. Um, you know, historically, Asian American history and Asian American stories and literature have really been concentrated kind of East Coast and West Coast. So when I was growing up and trying to read some of the literature, those are the stories that I read. So growing up in the South it felt like there wasn't much. Um, we certainly didn't have ethnic studies. <laughs> and Asian American studies was kind of just kind of like a, a side thing or a, an elective. It's not something that, you know, we were encouraged to take. Um, and, and so the, the stories and the experiences of Asians in the South were missing for a while. And then I would see a, a, surgence, a resurgence of, um, uh, leadership in the South that that may have may have wanted to 
share those stories, but just didn't have that outlet. Mm-hmm. And as um, Asian American media and literature and, and arts started to blossom across the country, then those voices were able to kind of like, hey, the stories in the South matter too. Um, so Erwin Tang is the um, editor and uh, curator of the stories in the book Asian Texans. Mm-hmm. And he had a really hard time publishing it um, because he didn't want to tell the stories in the way that the publishers, the quote legit publishers wanted us to tell it. So he said, screw that. We're going to go our own self-independent route. And and so we published it in that way. So I wrote the chapter on Vietnamese in Texas. And and yet when I looked through, it was published in 2007, 2008. And when I looked through the chapters of each of the, the groups, I still see remnants of model minority. We want to kind of like showcase who were the best of the best and who achieved highest ranks and this and this and that. But then I look at my chapter, I'm like, oh, it's very working class based. I wrote about sea drift and shrimpers and nail salon workers and black um, and Viet relations in the, the poor neighborhoods. And and so I think I've always had a, a, a an essence of wanting to kind of explore those parts of our community. And so it kind of, so then when Sea Drift, when Tim Sai, the director and producer of Sea Drift came to me and said, well, yeah, you know, I really want to make a film about this incident that I'd never heard of. And he had taken um, ethnic studies at Berkeley and Asian American studies. And he's like, this isn't anywhere um, in history uh, the, uh, books. And so I think that was his mission um, to, to kind of put it out there and say, uh, this is something very unique to the South, and yet also um, people could relate to it um, in lots of places because of the larger stories of racism, of, of economic uh, competition, uh, but of community and how a small community has to reconcile with that after violence and and involvement of the KKK. Um, and so I think he did a fantastic job of, of kind of highlighting and getting um, the, the, back the layers of, of, of Asian Americans in the South and in those experiences. Great. Do you uh, want to talk a little bit about, you said you're working on a project now on um, Vietnamese American incarceration? Yeah, so, um, you know, my students love uh, my, uh, Oh, back in my days when I was younger. <laughs> and, you know, I grew up in Houston. And um, during the time I was I was coming of age uh, during the years that you described, um, Bob, of the, um, you know, the crim- crime and the delinquency and the, the uh, rise in gangs um, of Vietnamese youth actually across the nation. So it's happening in California. It was for surely happening in Houston, and I was witness to it, privy to it, somewhat involved in it. Um, and so when I, I'm, I'm, re- I'm linking back to that conversation we had earlier about people being silent about the bad things that we did and mm-hmm. the bad things that the community did. Um, so my project is really anchored in, well, let's, let's write these narratives um, that will highlight that. We're going to highlight um, stories of incarceration, of criminality, uh, of, of quote, quote, bad Asians, <laughs> bad Vietnamese. Um, so it's part memoir, but also other parts, um, um, 
showcasing the experiences of these young men and women who um, were part were members of gangs or who dealt with drugs or who um, uh, worked in brothels and then grew up, you know, just kind of like, I'll be real here, like the seedy, <laughs> shady side of the Vietnamese American experience. And it's anchored in the South. So there's going to be a lot, so a lot of flavors in the South. So I started um, mentoring um, some uh, Vietnamese Americans that are incarcerated now to do their own writings and to uh, get their stories out there. One of them was recently published um, uh, in an online magazine called The Margins. Uh, and uh, the, the essay is called My Name is Chino. Um, and he's Vietnamese, but in, in the Texas State Prison, he's, he's, he's Chinese. So <laughs> they called him Chino in there. And so it's this, it's this beautiful, poignant essay about his life and his experience. And, and so those are the, the stories that I'm working on now. Um, I'm just polishing and working on my own memoir. I've got, you know, lots of help along the way. And so that is going to be um, my next kind of like focus of how do I uh, share this narrative in a very authentic way that kind of honors my own experience of being Vietnamese in the South and Houston. Uh, but I, I want to anchor it in a very sociological understanding too of why things happen the way they did. So, um, yeah, that's the exciting stuff <laughs> I'm yeah. doing now. Um, we're going to have to have you on again because there's like so much more I want to talk about, but, um, We've, we've talked for a while already. Um, the kind of last thing I wanted to ask is like, okay, so this, this current crisis isn't going away. We've now ripped it, right? And uh, in, a, in a very negative way, Donald Trump has kind of helped it, right? He's made it mm -hmm. with his crude, vulgar approach to race, that this is a, a grave and, and intrinsic problem. Um, and how do you see this going forward in your community? You know, how, uh, you know, minority groups are obviously part of the, the ruling class strategies to keep us all fighting with each other. Mm -hmm each other mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and so moving forward how do we start to kind of create these these movements for solidarity um and i know you're really on the front lines of that uh, as as a uh, you know kind of an activist scholar which is you know the best kind so thank you um you know donald trump is gonna go away in one form or another um and 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 yet the systems and the structures will remain you know exactly. he definitely was uh, a um, catalyst, if you want to call it, a, a the fuse that kind of blew this all up and exposed everything, like you just said, you know, exposed all of this. Um, but but you know the um, just the the magnitude of the inequality that exists in our society, the um, the rules and the 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 rules of the game of the, quote, quote, capitalism are so freaking rigged. And um, if we don't change those, right, then we're just going to kind of like be running in circles and we'll, we'll make this little progress. I, I think that, you know, with the George Floyd situation, I, my hope is that, yes, we address uh, police state, uh, police violence as state violence. I hope that I, you know, there's hope that there is reform and change in the rules, right? In the, and, and, and the, but at the end of the day, the big thing is, you know, this notion of defunding or refund or reallocating funds. And so it all comes back down to money and resources. So how do we make the decisions about what we will do with our resources, right? And so 
our activist communities have to make a push for, uh, it, it's this very careful line that we have to go, you know, tread back and forth between, is it race or is it class? Is it race or is it class? And we have to understand that it's both, right? And that, that intersection is, is a, a, a always fluid and we're gonna always have to kind of recognize when it is race and recognize when it is class and how those play together. Because if we can't do that and we say, oh, no, it's not race, nobody's racist, it's because oh, it's poverty, um, then we are ignoring the actual racism that is happening, which is very real. And then if we say, well, if we just treat everybody equal and we just care about people and we just, you know, stop harassing black people and brown people, then, you know, things will get better. And that's not true either, right? Because then we'll still all be, you know, stuck fighting for scraps. So my hope is if we see the reforms of structures in policing, maybe people will say, you know, it, our leadership requires us to now extrapolate that and say, now you understand why economic problems or economic structures create these problems. So now we need to re restructure those, or now we need to change the way our economics is um, distributed. And that's a hard sell to, um, the earlier, you know, the older generations of Vietnamese, because they're like, yo, you're kind of, you don't want to be communist, right? Yeah. And so is this, these late, these words that we have to be very good at using as well. Um, I think that one of the um, things we have to take the, by the reins is, is how do we shape our language? The Republicans have done an incredible job of framing emotional you know, angst with words that they use and, 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 you know, these tactics of fear. Um, Obama did a great job of changing that narrative and these, you know, these visuals of hope and change, right? And so how do we move forward and think about the messages that we want to provide and what are the emotions? Because we can throw facts all day, right? I'm on social media. People are like, what are the statistics of blacks you know being killed more by cops and then I give it to them and they're like oh well what about this and it's all about yeah. what about isms right so how can we change the language we know the facts or the data statistics research um but I think we have to get better at, at messaging um yeah. and I'm not sure if we're doing that very well yeah I think that what the, what the Republicans have figured out like like you know what what Trump is really good at is framing like white male rage right or mm -hmm. some some part of that and Part of it is that, you know, a lot of people on the kind of liberal left side, they think, oh, if we just share the facts, then everyone will know the truth and they'll they'll come over to our side. But the Republicans mm -hmm. are actually been, I actually feel like better than the the liberal left in like telling a story that really mm -hmm. resonates with people, even if it does, even if it's fact free. Right. Yeah. And they're able, and then they're able, and then they have like a, and then they have like a, a, a cycle that just does it over and over. It's Fox News or it's like Trump's Twitter or you know even smaller things like that and mm -hmm. i mean people stories with meaning impact people a lot more than just the facts yeah yeah i have a question for you too as you know you're outside looking into our into what you kind of observe and know about asian americans and in vietnamese americans um what do you see for us what what, what advice do you have uh, what what input or what thoughts can you share you know after kind of this conversation uh, because you're both so well versed in, 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 you know, collective action and, and you've got this podcast and you have these other avenues that, um, 
you're pushing that movement, you know, what do you have for, what can you guide us with? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I actually feel like the, the kind of one of the important things about this moment is it's youth led and it's multiracial. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I actually, I feel like, you know, communities, whether it's, you know, third generation immigrant community or whether it's like whites, like basically just continuing to organize and put pressure on these institutions, whether it's the police, I think that's an important piece. And then I also feel like, like kind of like what you were talking about before is just like having these conversations with your family or with people in your community about race and about anti-Black racism in particular are both are, are really important in this moment. And honestly, it's what the movement for Black Lives that is actually asking for people for like allies to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I think that's the most important thing I have. I mean, I'm from Texas and I have a whole lot of Trump relatives mm-hmm. and like I have yet to engage with them on this. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Can we have that as a, another podcast? How do we talk to our Trump relatives? Yeah. <laughs> we can have a whole, we can have a whole panel on that. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, um, we I'm, need help. I'm actually, I'm actually kind of optimistic because, um, you know, given my academic work, I've been kind of, I don't know, on the margins of the Vietnamese community for, for a while now. And I've seen like a really significant um, transition from when I started talking to people uh, to now. Um, you know, when I started talking to Vietnamese in Houston, none of them had ever been back to Vietnam and they would never go back. Mm-hmm. Where There's a great deal of, of uh, travel back and forth. People are going back to see grandparents or aunts and uncles that, that you know, they had known who, who stayed there after the war. Um, but I think the most, to me, you know, encouraging sign is people exactly like you and, and Roy Vu. Uh, we have this younger generation of scholars, of activists who are putting this, this, this history out there, putting these ideas out there, talking about uh, what the real situation was like, um, you know, when Vietnamese arrived in the United States. And, um, you know, they're calling for, you know, kind of this, this solidarity, this understanding that different groups are marginalized by the same people, you know, mm-hmm. they're forced into neighborhoods, um, you know, which are, which are underserved and, you know, they open up nail salons or Italians would open up little mm-hmm. uh, restaurants or whatever. It's kind of a similar experience for all immigrant groups mm-hmm. out and then the next immigrant group moves in. And so you may have had Italians or Jews or Koreans and now it's Vietnamese nail salons. And I think a lot more people are starting to come to an understanding of that and you know, like you said, and like uh, um, Nguyen said, um, you know, it's hard to talk to the older generation. I think any group would tell you that. Any immigrant group, ethnic group would probably mm-hmm. think so. Um, just just keep talking to them, get out there, let, let people know that, you know, not everybody in this particular group fits a certain stereotype. And there are a lot of people now, I would assume based on, you know, my general understanding of it, that people like you and, and like Roy really are um, I think becoming far more common and maybe even, you know, kind of typical of younger people. Mm. Great. So I'm, I'm kind of encouraged by that actually quite a bit. Awesome. I appreciate that out, outside lens of seeing that because sometimes when you're in the community, you don't know if your own, um, if you choose to see what you want to see, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're like, Oh, I see some activists, but maybe it's because I'm only looking for them. Are they really out there unmasked? And if you're telling yeah. me that you're seeing that, that's, that's, that's oh, even in my, in my student, my Vietnamese students are very different than they were, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, which is, you know, it's not saying that because they agree with me or anything like that. I think, 
discussing things and having, you know, they're open to, to new ideas and they don't all think now that Hutzimit is demonic or that uh, Nodinziem is a saint, you know, so they're really kind of opening up and really kind of, some of them have said they've had very difficult conversations with their parents about these things, with grandparents about these things, especially, you know, so. Um, that's great. And that's in Houston. Fortunately, difficult <laughs> conversations are, are a good thing. You know, they're not, yes. they're, they're difficult, you know, yes. they're yes. important. So. Yes. Well, thank, yes. Thank you so much. This was an awesome yes. show and we'll definitely have you back. It's been great. This was fantastic. Um, and Sea uh, Drift, uh, how can people watch that? Uh, we were um, free on PBS for the month of May. Um, it ended June 3rd, but the next um, phase, there it'll be video on, um, yeah, video on demand. So you could, uh, you know, pay streaming. And okay. so um, I think the director is working with PBS on what that, that release, uh, when that release will be, but um, there'll be more opportunities. And uh, I don't know if anybody uses DVDs anymore. I think they do. <laughs> so there'll be yeah. DVD sales and I'll be sure to share that. Okay. When that comes out. Mm -hmm. That'd be great. Fantastic. Thank you. So much. It's been great talking to you folks. You've been listening to Tao Ha on green and red podcast with Scott and Bob. You can follow us on social media at on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can become a Patreon donor at patreon.com backslash green red podcast, or you can go to our website, green red podcast, green and red podcast.org to donate as well. Thanks everybody. And talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.